find out more about how wearable tech will disrupt supply chain? Join Barry and the Two Babes in episode 37. This is Two Babes Talk Supply Chain, where we interview the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about the best practices, changes in the industry, and hot topics in supply chain. We answer all your questions and put the sexy into your supply chain. We are your hosts, Sarah and me. Welcome back, listeners. We are taking you into the virtual classroom today, but this is not just any virtual classroom. This is a disruption to learning about supply chain with Chris, the Executive Director for the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics and edX Supply Chain Management. Dr. Kaplis serves as the Executive Director of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Center for Transportation and Logistics where he is responsible for the planning and management of the research, education, and corporate outreach programs for the center. He created and leads the MITx MicroMasters program in supply chain management, the first online credential offered at MIT. In the first three years, more than 150,000 students from 196 different countries have participated in these online courses. So welcome to the show, Chris. We're so excited to have you here and looking forward to sharing what you are doing in the space of supply chain learning with our audience today. Great. Thanks, Sarah. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So why don't we get started and and, uh, you can tell us a little bit about MIT and about your program. Sure. So um, MIT, everyone knows, is a university. It's a large-scale university that is mainly research-focused. Um, but what a lot of people do not know is that we put a lot of strong emphasis on teaching. We have a long history of having innovative ways of teaching and reaching larger audiences. So our center, the Center for Transportation Logistics, or CTL, has been around for about 45 years, and we're one of the independent centers at MIT. And like our name implies, we're focused specifically on supply chain management, transportation, and logistics. And so that's our area. And within that, we have educational programs. We have corporate outreach programs, and we do a lot of research with companies. And so the MicroMasters program is an extension of our other efforts here. We've been offering executive education and master's programs and PhD, like I said, for about 40 years. And so by offering this online version, this MicroMasters credential, it kind of fits in our portfolio of education, more better suited for the professional uh, in supply chain management. Yeah, I was going to ask you who would take, uh, who is generally the the audience for you, who's taking those classes. Yes, that's the, <laughs> everyone is taking it apparently. So the age is, um, so let me update you on some numbers. Um, I just got them run this morning. So 175,000 students have registered for these courses over the last uh, year, two years and a half years. Wow. We issued about 18,000 certificates. And from 196 countries. So the average age is in the high 20s to early 30s, but it ranges by course. They're as low as some high school students, and they're as old as people in their 80s. Generally, run around 20% women, 80% men, and we're very strong in the U.S., about 20%, but 80% of the students are from all over the world. Um, India's next, and then Brazil, and then there are many other countries down the line. Amazing. So there isn't one single profile that we're finding. Those are great numbers. So what makes your program different? I mean, you, you mentioned that you 
you have some corporate research that you guys do within your program. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and, and how the program itself is different? Yeah, let me, so CTL, we were really focused on driving innovation supply chain into practice. So everything we do here, it has some theory to it, but it really has that practical focus. We really want to change the way that practice is done. And our education kind of mirrors that. What we found is there was a gap um, between the way that people were being taught. If they went through and got an undergrad or a technical master's, they'd learn a lot of theory. And they'd be able to do a lot of quant things, network design, and think of all those things. Um, if you were in practice or you went through, a, say, an MBA, a traditional MBA, you'd learn some of the softer side of things. Um, and But there's a gap between that. So a lot of professionals were more on that uh, the management or, or the leadership side, which is very important, but they were missing some of the depth, or they'd been out of school long enough that they had forgotten those skills. So what the MicroMasters credential, uh, how I differentiated from other um, credentials out there, whether it's APEX or um, TSCMPs, is that we're a little deeper. We're a little more quant-oriented. Um, and so we go beyond just the first, uh, here's, a, here's a formula. We try to make people understand the fundamental concepts and go pretty much to graduate school level but try to make it very applied. So what we're trying to do is bridge the gap between the, the hard and the soft, the theory and the practice. And that's what makes us, I, I think, unique in this space. So, Chris, could you break down the five courses for us? Sure. No, no problem. Ed. So we started with, the first course we offered was SC1X. And, of course, then we had to expand the five courses, so I had to create a 0X because I couldn't renumber so the five courses go, they're SC or supply chain, and everything in MITx and edX has an X in it. So for SC1, 0X, SC1X, 2X, 3X, and 4X. So those are our five courses. The first one covers basic analytics, and, and we teach people how to do classic optimization, linear programming, mixed linear programming, uh, statistics, regression, simulation, all the tools that you're going to need in your career or through the sequence of courses that we offer. So that's zero, supply chain analytics. Then we do supply chain fundamentals. And this is where we introduce the fundamental trade-offs that are in any supply chain, whether it's cost and service, inventory versus transportation, all those classic trade-offs that are taught in a classic ops class. So we focus on forecasting, inventory, and transportation. That's SE1X. SE2X is supply chain design. And that's where we look at the design of the three major flows, the physical, the information, and the financial. So we spend a lot of time on network design and then into production planning, aggregate planning, tie into procurement, and then a little segment on financial, supply chain finance, because that's what we have seen as a big shortcoming in a lot of uh, students coming in. So that's SC2X, supply chain design. SC3X is where we introduce the real world back in, and that's called supply chain dynamics. Talk about complexity in supply chains, the introduction of global supply chains that has a whole other layer of complexity. And then we add in disruptions and other things that affect and modify the design that you might want for your supply chain. We finish it off with SC4X, which is supply chain systems and technology. And so that's where we say, okay, all the things we've taught you so far, they're all true, but they're not done exactly like we've taught them. Um, you don't do a network design in a spreadsheet, for example. We might teach you that way in, to learn the concepts, but in practice, you, you're going to have a large system. So we introduce them to relational databases and make sure they understand how large-scale systems actually operate 
and then we introduce them to ERPs, TMSs, WMSs, and how those systems communicate. And we touch a little upon um, machine learning because that's becoming much more relevant to many more companies. So we go from SE0X analytics to fundamentals, design, dynamics, to systems and technology. We try to start with the fundamentals, the basic building blocks, and we make it um, add more and more complexity as we go through. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And you've totally covered everything that somebody needs to know, especially on the supply chain finance side. You say that a lot of professionals are lacking in it. I also find that there's a lot of companies out there that could benefit with a little bit more knowledge um, in the supply chain finance area. So I, think I it's agree. And, and what we try to do is because if you're in supply chain, you can speak the language of ops. You can talk to the COO really well, um, but you can't talk the language of the CFO. We, we, I was never taught this. And so we're trying to say, you know, how do you translate this into things that the CFO turn, cares about? That's what we're trying to do. It's not a full-fledged accounting course, but enough so you can translate a warehouse or an inventory reduction program into the bottom line differences. So that's what we try to focus on, how you can use this tool to communicate to the C-suite, specifically the CFO. Yeah, and, and also the technology component with the machine learning. I mean, the way the way things are going and, and with robotics and different things like that, it's super, super important for you know, anybody getting into this space to really understand. Yeah, we tried to get into that. And then the question, we talk a lot about the ERPs and TMSs, WMSs, because we've all probably lived through implementation. So we try to give almost cautionary tales of what to avoid and those kind of things. But some of those tales are getting outdated. Um, very few companies will be going through a first-time ERP implementation. Right. So they're facing different set of challenges. It's not that we have no information that we have too much information that's coming in from my uh, IoT equipped uh, equipment and materials. I have uh, too much information coming in. How do I handle that? Mm -hmm. So we started implementing a small section on machine learning and we're expanding it for the next time we run SC4X because I agree with you, Sarah. It's something that people need more uh, experience there. Awesome. So let's get into the disruptive part of... Um your courses. How are you disrupting the digital learning space? You know, it's it's. I, I would say that we're. I would say we're disrupting uh, typical learning, not necessarily just digital, because digital implies something. So the way that I was taught, and that most people were, we'd go into a classroom. Someone would talk at us for ninety minutes. They'd give us a homework. We'd have two weeks to do it. They'd take two weeks to grade it. They'd come back to you, and you'd have no recollection when it came back of what you were doing and the feedback, you know, you've already moved on 10 lessons. So this whole explain, do, and get feedback loop is the way we learn, but it was kind of broken in traditional education. And so what the online piece allows us to do is to close that loop. Because what we had been doing the last 10, 15 years is something called active learning, where we do less explaining and more doing and instant feedback in the classroom. It's called action learning or active learning. And so now with this online, I can give instant feedback to anyone 24-7 because it's built in the system. So we found some real benefits by doing this. And it does a couple things. One is we found that some things are best taught online. Other things are best taught face-to-face -face in residence. But online, there are certain things that are better taught through a video. For example, if I'm going to teach something 
rather technical, step-by-step -step methodology, then if I'm teaching this to a classroom of, say, 50 to 80 students, I'm going to look around until I see about half the heads nodding, and then I move on, right? Uh, so it's I'm going to the median, and you know that means, by definition, half the class is left behind. If it's taught in the video, those students who are catching it quick, they can speed me up to 1.5 or 2 times and just get through it quick. The ones that are slow, they can stop it, they can go back, they can rewind, all that different stuff so they can set the pace of the learning to their absorption rate, not to that of the aggregate class. So online is really helping that, and that's changing the way that we actually teach here just at MIT residents as well. When I first did these classes in the fall of 2014, um, the students, some of the students said, hey, I have these videos, can we, uh, can we have access to those? And I said, why do you want that? You got the real thing twice a week. I mean, I'm here live. Don't you want that? And they said, yeah, that's great, Chris. Can we get the videotape? They would rather <laughs> absorb it on their own pace. And I think that's something that's very valuable. So the net effect of this is limiting the effectiveness in our use of pure lectures. It's not the depth of PowerPoint, but it's, it's getting there. So if you're going to have someone come to MIT or fly anywhere and listen to a PowerPoint presentation for an hour and a half, you're wasting a lot of time. So we're finding one disruption is, is limiting the effectiveness and the use of pure lecture, which was the workhorse go-to technique of teaching up until around five, 10 years ago. So that's one big disruption. The other big disruption is um, everything that we put online for these MicroMaster courses, all five of the MOOCs, the Massive Online Open Courses, they're free. Anyone with internet connectivity can take any of the courses all the videos, all the practice problems, all the quick questions, all of the graded assignments, all that is there for free. And so if you want to learn, that's great. So we're educating the world for free. If you want to be credentialized, if you want to have a piece of paper, a certificate saying, hey, you've passed this at a certain level, then that costs about $150 because we have to do some special, we're a little more rigorous on those testing. And so we want to uh, you know, minimize academic dishonesty. So we randomize, we're very very run a tight ship on that, and that takes a little more uh, resources. So we educate the world for free. We credentialize the cost. It's $150, of course. And then what we're finding is companies are wanting this. So we're working with a number of companies where we blend the executive education. They have a sequence that's online, and then they have a sequence that's in person. And so that's where we customize. We do that at the margin. So it's disrupting it on the way that people receive information and minimizing the amount of lecturing we're doing. And it's also changing the price point that people would consider for education. Because if you want to learn, you can get it for free. So this is coming from a university that is not cheap. So we're essentially cannibalizing ourselves. And we're making a long-term bet because our mission here at MIT is to educate the world. And we're trying to democratize education. And the best way we know to do that is to offer courses for free. Credentializing is a different thing because then that that matters a little more. But it's educate, that's a big transformation. That is amazing. I, like, you can take these classes for free, and then if you want the credentials, you just have to pay for it. Like, I don't think well, there's anybody else doing that. Yeah, you can't do it after the fact. You can't say, hey, I did well, here's my 150. Okay. <laughs> what you do is the test, uh, the midterm and the final, because um, usually it's, it's eight weeks of content, and every week usually has two lessons that are to 90 minutes interspersed with quick questions, maybe some interviews, uh, very interactive. And so each course has eight weeks of those kind of content. 
someone going through zero through four, all five of the courses, it'll take them about a year and a half. Oh, okay, and that's not but a lot of time at all. The other thing, a big transformation is if you take this MicroMasters grant, it has, you get a, all five uh, courses, you have a verified, which means you pay and you're credentialized with those certificates, and you pass this comprehensive final, which um, we're going to offer for the first time in May, then you get the MicroMasters credential. The credential is a standalone certificate by itself, which has value, and we're working with companies and other universities. But the big thing, the big transformational thing, is the first time that MIT will give you credit here for a master's degree from MIT. So if you have the MicroMasters credential and you apply to MIT, the supply chain management program, and get in, we will back reverse award you 42 units, which is a semester of credit. And you can get the master's
maybe gets you equipped if that is where you want to go to a planning job because a lot of the planning you're going to use the software um, and what we try to do is make sure you understand what the software is doing not just how to press a button um, understand the fundamentals of what's really going on you know, with supply chain network design or production planning or an MRP understand what is happening so that'll hone those skills for you um, the other thing um, that'll do for an older career uh, professional is get visibility into other sides of the supply chain because you might have been very much focused in one area. So we are finding that a lot of the older um, students coming in, they're getting taking away something very different. And it also lets them catch up on the new technology. The last part of SC4X, our last course, we talk about advanced technologies, and that's something we update every run, of course. So we talk about the Internet of Things, we talk about autonomous trucks, we talk about all these trends coming down the pipe and then using all the skills that you've learned through the four courses or five courses rather what does that mean to your supply chain because hopefully people are acquiring the skills to process the difference so if something comes at them how will that affect my supply chain will it impact my network design will it impact my transportation profile all those kind of things i chris i can't let this go you're talking about the technology do you include drones in that please include drones I do. I, I do. That's one of the. Uh, so what I do is it's kind of fun. At the end of FD4X, I say, okay, here's the technology, and I talk for maybe two minutes on it, give some high level, and then they do a real time poll. Now everything's pre-recorded, but they when they do the poll, they get to see instantly what other people have done, and then they play the next video, and then they get my opinion. And so we, this is how we did a handful of different things: uh, omni-channel, uh, mobile computing, you name it. Half a dozen, and one of them was drones. And the, the survey I asked them, I, uh, this is a real simple one. Uh, the impact you see is being small or large, and you see this is happening sooner, later, or never. And the, the five years arbitrary was sooner to later. And so for each of these, they could decide themselves, see how they did, and then they see my video, how I would do it. And what I was trying to do there was to say, one, no one knows, but we all have opinions. And to kind of get your, it's like training yourself. As you do more of this, you say, okay, am I in line with other people? Do I agree with what other people are saying? And just having them exercise that muscle rather than, because uh, this is something that they can't just Google and find out what the impact is. They have to think about it and form their own opinion. So we do talk about drones, and uh, my personal opinion is just like uh, RFID, it's finding its niche. I don't see pizza deliveries by drone in Boston anytime soon. Um, but I do see it as delivering medicine to remote areas. I see it that it, it's going to find its use where it has its most, its most useful. And that's uh, getting to remote areas where traditional infrastructure doesn't exist for small payloads in a very fast period of time. So, Chris, earlier you were talking about videos and some people you could maybe uh, move through your course or your class a bit quicker because they're picking up the videos quicker, where some people need to look at the video a couple more times before they understand is there anything else about online learning that is becoming a better way to learn than traditional ways back in 10, 15 years ago? Yeah, yeah, I think there's two two big things. So that's yeah, each video, so you can your your learning absorption rate, you can now moderate the, the, what's being thrown at you to your own absorption rate. That's the big one for videos. And uh, the Khan Academy, if you've ever heard of that, KAHN is classic for this. They've been doing it for about 10, 15 years and a fantastic free site. Um, by Sal Khan. Um, and so they 
done that's been used to flip the classroom, all that kind of stuff. But the other is the immediate feedback of the problems. What we don't do is just have you know multiple choice. So you know choice A, B, C. Um, the the types of problems we can put in now are much more interactive. You can have uh, numerical ones where it gives you a hint, it shows you through, it gives you a full explanation, so you get instant feedback after you try to do the problem. Because usually, like I explained, if, if the feedback comes weeks afterwards, you've already forgotten. But if you're giving feedback initially, then it really helps a lot. So those are the two real benefits that I see um, for online. The other thing is it frees up the time constraint and the, the location constraint. So we have some people, most of the, the people taking the courses have full-time jobs. So they're taking this course, watching these videos, doing these problems, late at night, on the weekend, in their basement, while their kids are asleep or out somewhere else. So what this allows them to do is not have to travel somewhere and be on someone else's schedule or go to a certain location. It frees up the tyranny of the schedule and of the location they can do that at their own leisure within that one, two-week period. So that's the other big thing. It allows flexibility in how people consume um, the learning. And we find that people do it very differently. Some, uh, so it's a quick story. Um, we've got, you can do some different reports to see how people are doing in the course, how many hours of video they're watching, how many problems they got right, all those kind of things. And this is a whim. I went in and said, who's doing the best? who has watched the least amount of videos. And a bunch of names popped up of people who did really well in the midterm, the final, the, the homework, but they hadn't watched a second of the videos. And I immediately said, well, these guys are obviously cheating because they're getting the answers and just plugging them in. So I emailed them, about, uh, about a half a dozen. And uh, I almost got immediate responses from these guys, and they were all in Africa. And uh, one guy from Nigeria sent back and said, oh, I'm so happy to hear from you and very excited. And he said, what I do is I only have internet at work. So I download it at work onto my iPad. I watch it on the bus when I go, when I'm traveling home. And then I do the problem when I come back. So he's not streaming the video. So I have no capture of how much he's watching. He downloads the MP4 files, or MP3 files, and then he watches them offline, essentially. So I have no record of him watching the videos, but he's doing well in the classes. So I thought that was Smart. really interesting in consuming the product way I never would have thought on, on your daily commute to and from work. Yeah, and I like that flexibility aspect that you bring up because a lot of times with the traditional learning, you are on you know, the school schedule or, or the yeah. teacher's schedule. And, and this way, people are just really able to learn the way that they want to learn and, and that they can learn. And, and the, yeah, exactly. Because I actually do have uh, some sort of disabilities. And uh, going through school, I was able to get extra help and... Um, instead of a test being written, I was able to do it verbally and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So as long as people are trying to reach out and adapt to their abilities, this is a great, great thing to do. Great so so the two other things, um, students with disabilities can get more time on the test and things like that. So we also try to take care of that as well. Um, but the other thing I want to point out are things that aren't done as well online. Um, because it's not like a panacea, everything's going to go there. Um, one of the classic ways that you can teach someone, in MBAs especially, is the case study method where you have a Socratic uh, discussion. So where instead of the, the lecturer lecturing and, and you know all sorts of knowledge coming out from the front of the room, you pull the knowledge out from the discussion between students. Uh, it's a classic Harvard case study, Socratic method. Law schools teach this way. You can't do that online. 
not really well. It's really hard, especially in our classes. We typically have 30,000 students, and it's asynchronous, which means they're not all online at the same time because we're trying to free up and give that flexibility. So in my opinion, cases online, that's not quite suited. That's better done face-to-face. Same thing with Teams projects. Now, there are some interesting team projects you can do um, uh, remotely, and in fact, what we've done over the years is we actually, uh, in addition to what we have here at MIT, CTL has five sister centers that we set up as part of our scale supply chain, which is an excellent network across the world. One in Zaragoza, Spain, one in Bogota, Colombia, one in uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, Ningbo, China, and Luxembourg. And so each one of those is a mirror of our center, and they have master's programs as well. And what we do is we have this online simulation that we run where it's called a uh, a fresh connection, it's nothing we didn't develop it, it's out of uh, the Netherlands, it's really a nice system. But we assign the team so that one person on the team, all your team members are in other centers, so you've never met them. And you've got to work together remotely because, as you guys know, global supply chains, you've got to try to work with people you've never met in a different time zone, different culture, different language maybe. And so it's really interesting to see how the team dynamics behave. And what we found is, Dynamics are always better once they meet physically face to face. If uh, you know Skype is great, uh, video conferencing fine, but until you have that sphere together, you're still different groups. Until you have that physical face to face social event that bonds the team, um, you don't perform as well. And so we found that over time, and we can teach some of those lessons. But some other leadership or team based lessons, they're hard to teach online. They're best done small groups. And I definitely agree with the putting a face to an email instead of just the name that comes up is yeah. is a lot better. And then you get more of a rapport with the client. You uh, get to know commonalities and stuff like that. So uh, the next question is, do you think anything is missing in supply chain learning? Um, there's always more. So, right, if we talked two years ago, you wouldn't have asked about drones, right? So... Uh, I probably would ask about drones. I, I love my drones. <laughs> sorry? I, I probably would ask about drones. I, I've been loving my drones for about six years now. So. I think we've um, talked about drones on every single episode for the last 10 episodes. It's a commonality. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a drone pessimist. I think we'll see autonomous trucks before we see widespread adoption of drones. Okay, I can get that is, that. No, that is so cool too. Anything kind of a, yeah, anything like that. Mechanical, flying, driving by itself. Yeah, I mean. Sorry, you were saying about what was missing? Um, and I think it's, it's because new things are coming down the pike. Um, you can always, so we, we have five courses, right? And each course has eight weeks of content. And each week has two lessons, uh, 60 minutes to, to 90 minutes. So it's roughly 80 plus hours of content. Everything new I add, I have to take something out. Uh, anyone designing a program, it's a, it's a zero sum game at some point. So sure, we could go deeper into warehousing. We actually don't go that deep into it, to be honest. I have one lesson that really goes into you know, how to set up a warehouse and things like that. But most of the analysis we do is outside those four walls. So could we go deeper there? Sure. Um, so there are always pockets to go deeper, and what we're thinking of doing, we'll, we'll do once we finish up this first cycle, is start offering short courses. So a lot of the research here, uh, we have a lot of 
work in resilience to supply chain risk and how to mitigate that, that Professor Sheffy does, and we think you're having a short, maybe two, three-week kind of online course to complement that. We already have a more in-depth supply chain finance course that takes a, a little longer that we offer in person as well as blended and do that to a number of different companies. Last mile delivery, uh, because that's becoming more important, an omni-channel short course. So I see um, that the MicroMasters have this backbone of core courses, the core concepts that you need and apply to everything, and then having a series of shorter courses like electives, like you had in uh, college, that can kind of be layered on based on your interest. And that's kind of the path that we're taking forward. The other thing we're doing is um, we saw another gap, and that is, okay, we have our, our portfolio of educational op options. At one side, we have these MOOCs, these courses that you can take independently, one course and you're happy and you're done. At the other extreme, you can get a PhD, and that's you know five plus years intensive every time. Um, as I work between those, uh, there's a whole wide variety of different th ways to learn. Um, the MicroMasters credential is up from the MOOC; it's all online. Then we have the next step up is either a full master's or this blended five-month master's that I talked about. And we saw there's a gap there because just like I was saying that you can't online isn't great for everything. Uh, we said, okay, why don't we have a shorter version of what we call a boot camp? And so this one-week kind of boot camp, we'll, we'll try to do in there all those things that we can't teach online. And that's where we'll do case studies, team projects, one-on-one um, -on -one small group discussions with professionals. So what we're going to start launching at the end of uh, this summer in August is a MicroMasters boot camp. And if you finished three of the courses in the five-course MicroMasters credential, you can come to this, you're allowed to apply to this MicroMasters boot camp. And it'll be very intense, one week, uh, probably around 40 people, and you get all those skills that you can't do online. So when you ask what's missing from supply chain management, I think we're trying to close that gap, and what we're trying to do is match the method of teaching with the material that we're teaching. So you don't want to use a, a uh, online video to teach a case study, and I don't necessarily want to waste face-to-face -face class time teaches someone how to do an economic order quantity analysis. So we're trying to find the best method to meet the material we want to teach. Does right. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are doing all the right things. So we're coming to the end of our interview. And last but not least, I just want to ask you, you know, where do you see supply chain and transportation in the next five years? And what do you see as some of those challenges? I, there's a lot of, um, gosh, who knows? first answer, but I think we're going to see a rapid advancement of different technologies, um, and the technologies are coming all over the place. The autonomous trucks, I think they will start being adopted on um, isolated corridors within the next five years. I did a ride-along with uh, some Uber um, technology for the truck as well as the car in San Francisco early, late last year, and it's amazing what it can do. I don't think we're going to have trucks going in downtown Boston anytime soon. But you know what? On a corridor through Montana, yeah, maybe that's okay. That's going to have dramatic impacts. Uh, we're going to see some drone increase, maybe more within large facilities than external, but we'll see there. But also things like sensors. Sensor technology is totally changing on the things that they can sense at, uh, at different uh, times, whether it's a condition in the environment. Uh, that's changing the way that we can manage remote locations. Um, additive manufacturing is moved away from just doing tchotchkes where you want a three-dimensional figurine of your head 
uh, to being used in manufacturing. Uh, GE's been leading the way here, and the big uh, high thing that people had is that you don't use 3D printing or additive manufacturing to replace parts by part. You use it to replace a system with a single item. And so you're seeing a lot of examples where a multi-item component, uh, 10 to 12 components, are now being produced as one item in the 3D printing process. Now, it might be slower than the traditional process, but the machines aren't uh, unionized. They work 24-7. And it also has another ripple effect in that the input, the raw materials that feed in the 3D printing are very different. They're much more closer to the raw source. So keeping things raw, which means you're probably going to reduce your supply base. So I see additive manufacturing finding its niche, and it's going to change not just the manufacturing process, but also some of the sourcing and procurement footprints that most companies have. So I think the, the big change is we're going to see more change on the technology side. The other is the political. Um, boy, who knows where these winds are heading, whether uh, global trade is going to increase or decrease. Um, the one thing that I would advise any company to do is something we do here, we do scenario planning, where you have different future scenarios and you try to understand you know, get your arms around what could potentially happen, and more importantly, how would I react if something happened, rather than trying to predict the point future forecast. Because it could be we're going to have a, a bunch of you know smaller markets. What well, you saw what happened with Brexit, so manufacturers might want to have country-specific distribution, or we might have a big uh, you know uh, rip back into global trade. Who knows? But I think companies are getting much more savvy. Uh, and being able to flip one mode to the other and trying to be more flexible. Absolutely. 30 seconds on, five years out. Yeah, no, that was great. Some of the things we've talked about in, with past guests and some of the things that uh, we also think and, and also some new opinions. So really, really good. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on the show. Um, such amazing information for our audience. So thank you again. No problem. Glad to be here. Bye. Want to learn more about the MIT program? Go to edX.org or visit our website at todayscottsupplychain.com for more information. And for next week's episode, we listen to you, our audience. This is a flashback from a few weeks ago when we spoke to Simon about demand-driven supply chain. Well, next week, we have co-founder of Demand-Driven Institute, Carol, ready to take us through the demand-driven adaptive enterprise model, and you won't want to miss this. Remember to subscribe to us or write us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. This episode was produced by Mike Mazurik. We are your hosts, Nick and Sarah. And remember, people, ship traffic.